All right, everybody. Why don't we turn to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11. <coughs> we'll stand and read Paul's letter together. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We, we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are manifest, made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is a new, in Christ, he's a new creature, the old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling him, the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray as a church. Uh, Father, we thank you for this amazing passage. Um, I know certain verses from here have been memorized by people as one-liners to help them through life. Um, you know, a lot of times when we're learning to memorize scripture, these, some of the verses in here are part of that, that natural vocabulary that all Christians should know. And there's so many rich truths in here. Uh, you could preach five different sermons from this passage on five different categories of life. I just pray, God, that for the category that I've got chosen today, that you would give me clarity to stick to the, the basics, stick to the truth, and uh, your spirit reveal to everyone in here what they need to hear and know to honor you with their lives. So we look forward to our time together. Amen. Well, if you remember from last week, our first sermon of the year was about the kind of faith that pleases God. And the sermon was in response from a theme that emerged from our time of sharing that occurred the week before. This week I decided to speak topically again, because uh, in two weeks we're going to start a new book, a new book series in the book of Timothy. First Timothy is our book for the new year, and so I'll do another topical sermon for the next two weeks. But it's my guess in here that perhaps some of you have made New Year's resolutions in regards to your appearance or acquiring some kind of new skill set or working on an old one. You made resolutions that perhaps starting exercising more, eating better, dressing nicer, studying differently, practicing X, Y, and Z, all these things will be important in terms of um, improving yourself in some kind of way. But I want to speak to you this morning about this because I'm guessing that for many of you, the reasons for making these resolutions are just because, are not just because you want to improve health, as good as those things are. It's because you believe that by having these things, you'll have more self-worth if you accomplish these goals. 
So if you look at yourself now and you evaluate yourself in terms of worth, and you're a six out of 10, by eating better, you know, uh, exercising, accomplishing a new skill set, you'll move to an eight this year if you do that. It's a measurement stick for your value. So you'll feel more valuable if you're skinnier, faster, smarter, or whatever. That's what we're gonna talk about today. Does God care? And if he does, why or why not? So let me give you the context of this verse. Notice in verse 11, Paul begins with a therefore. What Paul's doing here is linking a new thought in verse 11 forward with a previous thing he just spoke about in verse 10. Now in verse 10, he just spoken about the fact that one day, every believer in Christ will have to stand before the judgment seat to face God. But not in terms of a judgment of whether one enters into glory or one has to face the consequences of hell, but a judgment in terms of the kinds of rewards, rewards one will receive for the way they conduct their lives on this earth as followers of Christ. As a result, Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We persuade men. Now, normally when Paul speaks of this persuading men, it's in relationship to the gospel message, teaching people about who Jesus is and to come to repentance and whatnot. But I believe in this context, the persuasion of men is in a different category. We know based on the letter that Paul had an issue in Corinth where the legitimacy of his leadership and apostleship had come into question. Certain opponents had arised in the church and they had upset the Corinthian church claiming that Paul was not to be trusted as a leader. Now this is nothing new for Paul. This is a regular issue in his life. I, when I went to Regent College this summer and studied the book of Galatians, a huge portion of my time in learning that letter was, this letter was in Galatia was written to counteract um, basically accusations that had been made against him by other false teachers. And they were upsetting the Galatian church. So Paul had, was no stranger to this. He'd go to Galatia, his reputation was, at, was in question. He's in Corinth, his reputation's put into question. But here, compared to Galatia, the accusation is different. In Galatia, it was more to do with his, uh, his, the, the content of his, of his teaching. Here, it has to do with his appearances and his skill set as a teacher and, and speaker. The charges brought against him had to do with his lackluster personal appearance and his incompetency as a speaker. Just quickly look at this with me because we're so close in the book. Just flip to 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. Read this with me. 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. So, why would this matter to the Corinthian culture? And why would the false teachers think that by questioning his appearance and his skill set as a teacher would, would um, make people walk away from him and follow them instead? Well, we know within the Greco-Roman culture that people often gathered in market squares to hear debates. So, right now we have YouTube channels and uh, different social media platforms if you want to be heard, like the Jordan Petersons of the world, he's got a platform and he's got a huge following. In those cultures, you went into public situations and public squares and markets, 
and you would debate people of different philosophy. We see this in Acts 17. Paul's in the Areopagus in Greece, and there's Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. If you ever want to know what that means, uh, we can talk about that later. But Epicureans believe one thing, Stoics believe another. And Paul's listening to these guys debate, and he enters into a discussion with them about the resurrection. But he had a public platform to go listen to people. He was given a public platform to speak. And people, in response to him, there were three responses to his message. Some believed, some said we want to hear more, and some rejected outright. So that we know this was a biblical thing, these public uh, orators, these like rhetoric teachers that would come up and try to gain a following. Now according to the commentaries and extra biblical work I did, here was what was key. In order to be a great leader and gain a following, in that culture, one's appearance and skill in speech, in the, in the way you delivered your speech, with the inflections in your voice and your rhythm and timing, all of these things mattered. They mattered. Ben Witherington, in his commentaries, he, he uh, talked about different historical resources that he had researched, and he quoted one after another from the first century of quotes that were made from the first century about this. And it says, and I quote, orators paid special attention to their clothing, appearance, and delivery and sound of their voices. One source was funny. He actually said this. One guy had jewels interwoven into his hair, and he had basically had gone to manicure his whole body, having every hair in his body plucked out of it. Because he thought if he looked like a doll, basically, he would gain a greater following. This is how far these people would go. So you can see now Paul is fighting the culture. Appearance and skill set is important in that culture. He doesn't have those things according to false teachers. His letters, his content is, is weighty and strong, as they say. But the way he looks, nothing to be, he's just lackluster. The way he delivers his speaking, nobody cares. He's not got it. So Paul brings a defense. He says, I'm going to persuade men. I'm going to persuade you that I am legitimate as apostle. And he goes on to do the rest of the persuasion in verses 11 through 13. He says, again, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us. So that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are sound mind, it is for you. Now, this reading in the NASB is fairly tricky to understand. Let's be honest. I mean, what is he really saying here? You can get some ideas, but it's not totally clear how he's defending himself. Let me read to you from the NCV, the New Century Version, and the NIV blended together, and this will make a lot more sense. This is what Paul's saying. Since we know what it means to fear the Lord, we try to help people accept the truth about us. God knows what we really are, and I hope that in your hearts you know too. We are not trying to prove ourselves to you again, but we are telling you about ourselves so that you will be proud of us, despite my appearance and my unskilled speech. If we are out of our mind, as some say we are, it is for God. But if we are in our right mind, it is for you. Didn't that help? Paul's point is clear. Instead of judging us by the outside and evaluating 
me solely on what you see and the way I deliver my speech. Judge, I hope you would judge me by the sincerity of my heart and the way I've acted amongst you. Look at my track record with you and the way I've treated you and I've been amongst you and the way I've cared for you. Look at the inner qualities that I've presented to you. So don't be instead, instead don't be in shade of my ministry and don't try to disassociate with me. Be proud. Be proud of me. Focus on the substance of my teaching, not the delivery. Focus on my heart towards you, not my outward appearance. Which is in total contrast to the culture and what the opponents who are making accusations against him cared about. Paul knows a person's worth never comes from the external appearance or one's skill set in life. What one displays on the outside is irrelevant to God in, determines, in terms of determining one's worth. In chapter 4, listen to the description of Paul's understanding of the human body. Turn with me to 4.16. 4.16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but through our outer, though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. Basically, Paul says, you're an eroding container heading for the grave. You're going back to the dust where you came from. You're decaying. Your outer shell is decaying. But there's a chance for something else to be not decaying. Your inner man can be renewed on a daily basis. It can grow. Look at five, chapter 5, 1 and 2. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Again, the house and tent reference is our body. In this house and this tent, it's being torn down and we're groaning. But we're waiting for the resurrected body to come. The key for Paul again is there's no point in putting confidence in one's appearance, skill set, fitness level, or anything else like that. Because in the end, we're going to be six feet under the ground. And none of us are going to escape that reality. Now, Paul's not saying we shouldn't take care of ourselves. It's important, I think, to promote uh, longevity so we can maximize our service to God and the roles we've been called to. If you're, if you're a healthier parent, or if you're healthier, you can parent. Uh, better. If you are healthier, you can work harder, uh, which God would care about. You can serve Him in ministry longer and to greater capacities because you don't get tired as quick and so on and so forth. These things do matter in terms of like, um, in trying to maximize your service. But in terms of an issue of worth or where we put our hope, where we put our hope, not a chance according to Paul. What matters to God is the inner man. That's where the treasure of God is to be found. And it's not that the Bible doesn't recognize when people are beautiful and attractive, or skilled for that matter. David in 1 Samuel 16, and I quote, was a handsome and had beautiful eyes. Okay? Sarah in Genesis chapter 12 was so beautiful that Abraham worried everywhere he went with her that someone would want to try to take her. And sure enough, twice it did. I mean, imagine you travel to a foreign country, your wife is so beautiful, 
that he's worried that the king of the land will take her, and she actually does. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of people in the city. She must be like, <laughs> like the upper echelons of beauty. But you know what's amazing about these two people? Do you know how the Bible describes them at the end of their life, or even during their life in terms of what was most important? They focus on their inner core man, their inner man, their character, and, and ultimately their obedience to God. In Acts 13.22, David's life is summarized in one sentence. He was a man after God's own heart. That's the definition of him in Acts 13. Not he had beautiful eyes and made the front cover of Vogue. Okay? Peter gives a description of a godly woman in 1 Peter. He says, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold, jewelry, or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. And next verse, like Sarah. She, to use my words, is a smoke show in today's culture. And everybody, all Peter cares about was her character before the Lord. That is the inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit is of great worth in the sight of God. But you know what, church? This was not just a Corinthian issue. This is our issue as well. That's exactly how the world evaluates worth today. Unless someone is deemed beautiful by our cultural standards, they're worth not much. If you're not as skilled as someone else in the area of music, sports, fitness, whatever, you're not worth as much as the other person. If you're not as highly educated as someone else and didn't go to the right schools and don't present yourself well, you're deemed less valuable. I saw this as a gym, in the gym as a trainer. I won't mention names because um, some of you might know the people and I've got Sharon here too. And, <laughs> and, different, and Stu was here, but uh, anyway. But this is, these, I'll tell you two, two true stories that happened in my gym. Uh, I had these, uh, I just call them like Lululemon loving bunnies, <laughs> okay? Every time they came to the gym, it was Lululemon, everything matched, it was all to the nines, everything was perfect. One day, um, a guy walks into the, into the gym dressed, let's say, not to their standards. Their workout clothes didn't match what they thought workout attire would be. And I could hear them poking fun of this person behind like their back, and I could overhear them basically laughing at this person's outfit. Basically, what they were saying is, this, I'm worth more and more important in this gym, and I have, I, have, I, am worth, I have better worth and value because at least I know how to dress according to this culture. That person doesn't. Another time, a woman used to always come to my gym first thing in the morning because she was, uh, her schedule was like, uh, you know, rushed, and so she'd always shower and come straight to the gym. So, I know what your women's hair looks like, wet. Okay, compared to how it looks now. You imagine, imagine we took pictures of you and we just put them up on this PowerPoint screen, what you look like now versus what you did two hours ago, okay? This woman would come to the gym every day looking like you would two hours ago. She didn't care. She had a schedule to keep and she was just happy to, to, be, to train. I heard one, another woman who was just before her 
basically make a derogatory statement about how she always looks, ex, you know, ex, I won't, you can't even repeat the words in here, basically a commenting on her, her dragged look. Again, her way of saying, at least I look better than her, I have worth, I have worth more than her. You know, I wish as believers we could say we're not impacted by this. But how many of you fall into a slump or a little bit of depression when someone else more attractive is around you? That you deem more attractive, like culture does. That's maybe prettier than you. How, how when a guy is in better shape or you're playing a sport and he just, he just tools you all the time and he's more athletic, how do you feel? Someone can play music better than you, is higher educated than you, has a nicer clothes than you, has a better home than you, his family seems to be put together more than yours. Do you start to feel depressed, down? How about the flip side? Do you feel bolstered up in your spirit? When in a spirit of comparison, you think, oh, at least I'm not like them. I mean, I thought I had a big nose, but man, their nose is way bigger. But man, like, I just, I'm so grateful for mine now. At least my clothes, you know, I thought Costco was a bad place to shop, but after seeing where they shop, I'm quite grateful I have Costco. Listen, church, we're affected by it. We, we, I guarantee you in this church alone that we've had to confess unto the Lord that when we stare at people or look at people or value people, we will feel better or worse than even within our own congregation with God doing a work in our heart. I guarantee it. Paul's message is a broken record though. Look at verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh. We don't evaluate the world this way, church. That is not how God evaluates worth. It means jack squat to him. What matters to Paul is the inner man, the love of God in the hearts of people. And we pick this up in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having con concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. I love this statement by Paul. The love of God is what controls us. What controls you? The worth of God? The love of God? Or the, the, appearance, the, the, the approval of man? But for Paul, here's what's beautiful about this. The love of, when he says the love of Christ controls us, what does he mean by that? It was Christ's self-sacrificial act of dying on the cross for him as a substitute that motivated his complete service and life in ministry. I'll say that again. It was Christ's self-sacrificial act of dying on the cross that motivated his complete service and life and ministry for him. His sense of worth came from that act alone. And his service and commitment to sharing the faith to people then was not motivated by, by the, motivated by the approval of others, but in Jesus' profound love for him. There's a huge lesson for us in here, church. Notice what happened here in terms of order. Grace of Christ preceded his life of service, like the, the living for him. This is really important. In other words, Paul, out of feeling so loved by Jesus for what he did on the cross, couldn't help but just give his life in entirety in obedience to Christ. Grace preceded law for Paul. Law didn't precede grace. 
Let me expound on this further. Some of you in here are very rule-based and judge your sense of worth with God based on how you do and how you perform today. I'm such a bad person because X, Y, and Z, and so on and so forth. If I just did more for God in these areas, He'd love me more, etc. We'd have all these rules we create in our head. In my study of Exodus, I learned something profound. When Israel was redeemed from Egypt, notice the order. Redemption from Egypt came first. God saved the people out of Egypt. And then, a few months later, the law came. Grace preceded law. His love for Israel, redeeming them, saving them. Then he gave them the law and how to relate to him because of his love. Why is that important? God could have done it the other way around. Israel, I'm going to rescue you from Egypt based on one thing. What's that, God? I'm going to give you my law now. If you do well, you're, I'm going to deliver you from Egypt. If you don't, you're stuck there. <laughs> Guess where Israel would still be to this day if the law came first? Isn't that powerful? He didn't give them the law and then redeem them based on their performance of the law. He gave them grace. He saved them and said, now I'll give you my law and how to relate to me. Paul says this, the love of God, the grace shown to me is what was given. And then it compelled me in my life, the rules and the laws I live out for God because of his love for me. It was an order of sequence that's massive for him. I would pray that you guys get that strong in your heads as you move forward into this year, especially if you deal with feelings of sense of worth because of the way you are or aren't as a Christian person. Grace precedes law, and Paul understood that. And this love was not just offered for a select few. It was offered to every single person in this world. Look at verse 15. And he died for all. He died for all. This universal offer of love was given to all people. And Ben Witherington says it well. He says, the word all should be taken very seriously here. Christ died for the sins of the entire world, not just a select few. Or some of our brothers and sisters in Christ would say, the elect. He didn't die for the elect, just for a select few. He died for the entire sins of the world. And so Paul unpacks the gospel even further. Not only is this this a universal offer, he gives us the important reason for the death of Christ in verse 15. He says that he died for all, now watch this, so that, here's the purpose clause, they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. He died that people don't live for themselves, but live for him who died and rose again on their behalf. If you ever want to mark up your Bibles, this is a verse that you should do so. Notice how Paul describes the differences between someone who's a follower of Christ and someone who is not. There's only two categories of people in this world. You live for yourself or you live for Jesus Christ. Those are the only two options according to Paul. When I heard Dan Jansen speak on this, um, he said it this way. There are no degrees of sin listed here. 
both the terrorist and the person working the Red Cross are in the same camp if they're not living for Jesus. They're living for themselves. The neighbor who mows your grass when you're on holidays or the person serving in prison for armed robbery is in the same camp if they're not living for Jesus. There are not different degrees to which selfish living can cut. Sorry. Yeah, so we're in the same camp in terms of who you're living for. Now, I'm not saying this. I recognize there are different degrees to which selfish living can cause harm and different degrees in terms of consequences. The pain caused by a drunk driver will be far worse than someone who maybe talks behind your back. The pain and the long-lasting consequences will be different in terms of its emotional impact. But it's the same in terms of both are living selfishly for themselves. They're not living for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not in the equation when making life decisions. Every decision made, as good and self-sacrificial as it appears on the outside, is for their own self-benefit if they're living for themselves. To earn personal merit or to do, have a reputation of good works. The purpose of the cross here, according to Paul, is for self-centered living. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. Christ, basically, if you want to summarize what the cross is for, he died for selfishness. He died for selfishness. You want a definition of sin? You can have this long theological like, debate about what sin is. Sin is simply this. It's a selfishness. And God is love. You're to love God with your whole heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Any act of selfishness violates both those commands. And every single one of us have broken God's love command. Every one of us. Me too. Hence why I needed Christ to die for me <laughs> so that I could stop living for myself and start living for Him. Now it's because of selfishness then that we need to be reconciled to God. And our sin needs to be dealt with and put right before Him. And this is how Paul concludes his message today. Look at verse 16 through 21. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we've been known, known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature, and the old things have passed. Behold, the new things have come. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed it to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on our behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He made him who had no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Whenever you study the Bible, a really good way to understand what a passage is about is to circle repetition. You notice that reconciliation or reconciled occurs five times in this passage. Two times in verse 18, two times in verse 19, one time in verse 20. Now while this whole section deserves a sermon in itself, I want to focus only on one verse. The whole theme here is because of selfish living, we need to be reconciled to God and Christ died for all. He 
Here's the key, it's in verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's look at the first half of it. He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf. Paul's reminding us here that Jesus, as he lived in this earth, was sinless. He never committed one selfish act as an entire life. As a result then, he could die for us as a substitute for sin because he didn't have any. Whereas you and I can't die for ourselves in terms of saving ourselves because we are sinners. So so the penalty of sin is death. So all the sins of the world then, ours, mine, yours, all of our sins are passed to Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for them. They were given to him to pay the penalty for us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He wasn't the sinner, we were. And God made him to take that penalty on our behalf. Now watch this, the second half says this, so we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's through that substitutionary death that we gain right standing with God. We are reconciled to God. So in other words, when we're born into this world and as we live, we are not in relationship with God just because we're human beings. We stand outside of the reconciliation with God. But Jesus loves humanity and loves us so much that he has to bridge, he wants to bridge that gap and bring us into relationship. He wants to reconcile us. So what he does, he sends Jesus to the world to die in our place so that if we put our faith in Jesus Christ and live for him the way Paul does, obey him, love him, the way Sarah did, the way David did, we, thou, inherit his righteousness and it gets imputed to us. And now we can stand before God sinless in terms of the wayward, in terms of the judgment. Through belief in Jesus Christ, our sin debt is paid, not counted against us. And we stand before God in, a, in confidence and security that we've been forgiven. You see why Paul calls this a ministry of reconciliation five times in the verses. And as a result of this reconciliation, verse 17 says that we've been made a new creature. The old things have passed away. What are the old things passing away in this context? What's the old things in this context of passing away? Selfish living. (laughs) Living for yourself. It's done with. Christ died for those selfish living things so that new things can be put on. What are the new things? We're a new creature. We can live for Jesus Christ now. See, we don't have to try to attain our worth now through appearance or approval of others or being skilled in speech. Our worth comes from the love of Jesus Christ given to us and our value that has been placed in Him. So in conclusion, it's okay, church, to make new resolutions. It's important, I think, to take care of yourself, to pursue health goals and whatnot. But if your primary reason for doing these things is to try to bolster yourself up or produce any kind of self-worth, it's a delusion. Christ is to be that for you. Your worth is found in Him, His absolute love for you. Paul was overcome by His love, by His grace. When he was saved in Acts chapter 8 or 9, I think it's 9, he, was, he couldn't eat or drink or do anything for like three days, I believe it was. He was so overcome with the grace of God in his life. 
I want to finish with 1 Timothy 4.8. For bodily discipline is only of little profit. It's only of little profit. But in our world, for everything, it means everything in our world, doesn't it? But godliness is profitable for all things since it holds a promise for the present life and for the life to come. How you conduct yourself in this world now in terms of your inner spiritual life and the way you, you respond to Jesus Christ and the way you live for Him, those have promises for the eternal life as well. All the bodily discipline in this life does, all the New Year's resolutions are only for this life. They hold no promises for the afterlife. The New Year's resolutions, according to Paul here, would be put into the spiritual aspect of your life. Making, doing things to renew the inner man, to reconcile with God. So what can we learn from this today? I have quite a few lessons today, actually, because there's so much in here. According to Scripture, human beings ought to live for themselves or for Jesus Christ. There's only two categories. Yes, the consequences of living for yourselves are different. Yes, there are degrees in terms of the harm and effects it causes, like the Iranian, you know, um, shooting down the, the jet. I mean, the consequences of that compared to maybe someone gossiping behind somebody else's back are, are quite a big difference in severity. But they're still living for themselves. So again, this is important because there's only two categories. Both, if you live for ourselves, regardless of what degree you're on the scale, you're still guilty before God and having a sin debt against you. But when we, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and live for Him, we are freed. We are freed. And now we can live for Him in life and service. Second lesson. Sin at its most basic level is defined as living for oneself. Selfishness. Sin's most basic definition is selfishness. The person who mows your lawn is still in it for selfish gain. You know why? Because if you and him or you and her have a fallout, they won't mow your lawn anymore. They're doing it so you have good relations with each other. They're not doing it in service for Jesus Christ. When it's in service for Jesus Christ is when the, your neighbor hates you and makes it known and you still mow their lawn. <laughs> now, you know, it's not for selfish gain anymore. Jesus died in our place in order to reconcile us to God. Lesson three. Five times in this passage, it's a ministry of reconciliation. Since we are all selfish, including your pastor... By nature, I had to reconcile, be reconciled to God too, you, well, 14 years ago, whatever it was. Yeah, I mean, we all, He died for me, I recognize that. He died for us, you should have recognized that. He did it so that we could be the righteousness of God, according to Paul in verse 21. Fourth lesson, as followers of Christ, we are not to evaluate others' worth based on appearances. That's the whole reason why this verse, these verses exist. Paul was getting judged for the way he looked and the way he spoke. 
Like I said earlier, I wish we could say as Christians we don't fall into this camp sometimes, but we do. We often look at someone else and either feel depressed or bolstered up by the way we evaluate ourselves in comparison to other people. If, you know, if this is a temptation in the Corinthian church, it's definitely one for us as well. But don't evaluate people based on their dress, their hair, their level of education, their different skill sets. That's not where God puts the worth of a person. Finally, the most important lesson. As believers, her sense of self-worth is to be found in Christ's love for us and compel us to live, in our, live our lives in service to Him. Therefore, the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Amen.